I personally haven't seen anyone who's had a negative experience from it. And I think to people like the Beatles and... But I do, you know, I think if you're with the right people in the right environment, sure. and of course, many, many indigenous cultures around the world, and indeed ancient cultures explore this, so, you know. It's Set and setting, you're right. It's, mm. But it is funny that it actually was your video, which oh. I saw five <laughs> years ago. Strange, yeah. It is so strange that... It, to me, that seems like a long time ago. I know, that yeah. is a long time ago. Yeah. It was 2013, and I... I'm glad it had a good effect <laughs> <laughs> it was actually. I mean, uh, maybe my mum might might oh. not find it a good effect. No, no. she did. She did. Jason she would love it. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So, Melissa Stray, yeah. thank you so much for being here. Uh, so, one of your title is mm. futurist. Yeah. You're also doing your PhD in uh, design scientist yeah. or design science. So, thank you for you know somehow adjusting this. Uh, first thing I would like to ask you is. How would you define, I mean, uh, or, or express to anyone who wants to see or have never actually felt it, mm. what a future city could look like? It could be any, any kind of possible uh, direction you want to take, please. I draw on my arts background. Um, and so the route that I choose very much depends on how much time I have, who I'm speaking to, because I speak to people who are sometimes very young, um, you know, people of all ages, people of both professional and uh, non-professional background. So, for example, if I'm speaking at a public festival, um, I will usually draw on things like storytelling and narrative um, and a lot of imagery. Uh, but if I'm speaking with professionals, I'll, I'll usually speak a little bit more technically. But again, it's very culturally specific for me. And I'm always very cult conscious when I speak with an audience, I think about the things they might not know, they might not have experienced, and I try and share that with them. And it can be a little bit worrying because sometimes people, you don't know how they're going to respond. And again, when you're speaking internationally, different cultures respond very differently. So, I mean, it's, it's something pop stars say. Some audiences very much engage, and you can tell from their face that um, they're with you, as it were. But others, you get this deadpan expression, um, and... Um, you know, you, you sort of stand there and you think, well, goodness, you know, what, what do people think? But actually, I always think that whether or not it's speaking to future cities or any subject, always be honest and always take the risk because it's better to be frank with people and to just tell it as it is and have that open dialogue than not. And I never, I never speak to people who want yes men and women because we don't get anywhere when we do that. So uh, that's perfect. I mean, one of the things which uh, would be interesting, so anyone, let's say, I mean, it's, it's, it's of course, as you can imagine, the audience mm. who would be listening to this would mm. be, I hope they would be pretty diverse. Mm. So one of the things which I think is storytelling, as you said, you mm. choose storytelling sometime mm. to explain what a city would look like. Yeah. I mean, even if it is not a future city, but I w mm. I'm really interested, what do you think? What kind of a city you would like to live in? I mean, how would you define it? Because there's... what, And please mm. tell me if I'm wrong. Uh, I think that when you are thinking of a city, you're not mm. just thinking of the buildings and mm. what kind of uh, architecture yeah. would it be there. You're thinking of that girl who's walking from her home to, I don't know, story center. Mm. Uh, we might call something like that. And then mm. she hears some natural sound, the mm. chirping. And that actually inspires her to be a marine biologist. Mm. And, and somehow 
there are some spaces outside where this mm. person who's i don't know 50 years old and mm. you know formed the relationship with some sort of unwild birds mm. of prey mm. you know whatever whatever that would be i think of the i think of many many different cities so when i think to the future of cities although i'm i mean obviously i'm i'm though i'm a consultant and a corporate professional i'm also an academic so i'm very much aware of the past cities the many many visions back throughout time um the historic cities but i really think i draw my my first-hand experience of having traveled around the world having met peoples of all different strata of wealth and culture and religion and actually listening to them having conversations what is it that they really want and then i think about what i want and i'm I'm a very aesthetic person. I'm very much drawn to beautiful things. I'm very conscious of that. I, I mean, literally, I won't name the city, but <laughs> I once visit, visited a city in the Middle East that I, literally, my response when I saw the city, because I'd had all these romantic visions, you know, I sort of had read the Arabian Nights and I'd, you know, read all these various tales and seen these wonderful films and books and so forth. So I thought it was going to be this incredibly romantic and, and I, you know, I imagined all these historic architectures and this magnificent Arabic architecture and I literally cried. Now, admittedly, I could have had a bit of jet lag, but I so, I looked at the city and it was sterile. It was devoid of anything that told you about those peoples, those cultures. There was nowhere for nature. They had glass facades, a, a very modernist architectural narrative, very boxy skyscrapers. And it spoke above all to, you know, when we think back to historic architectures, um, particularly they of the East, uh, but also actually in the global north, if we go back to ancient times, if we go back to the Bronze Age, people designed with nature. It was inherent. They understood the cycles. They understood the goings, uh, the, the coming and going of species. And buildings and their infrastructure more generally was created with that in mind. But I found myself confronting a very typical city that is, you know, it, it's essentially the, the, the city that made me cry. <laughs> it's the city upon which many, many cities effe effectively have been based. It's, it's like the, the archetype of the 20th century that spoke not to nature and it spoke not to belief in God in there being anything greater than man. It was all about humans, but more specifically about humans that have a secular vision that, in effect, put humans before all else. And I think that really is the root of what, for me, has gone wrong. And so when I think to the, the future cities that I would like to see around the world, they, first of all, they are relevant to the site. So they, they are architecturally um, attuned, as it were, to the, the temperatures and the, the other aspects of the environment. And also over time, in that sites change. So if we think back to ancient Mesopotamia, the cities, well, they had some very interesting concepts. So they would have a physical built city, the practical city. And then they would have the avatar city, which it, it was an avatar. It was, it, you know, in the sense that it wasn't a city that functioned as a center for trade or for day-to-day -day life. It was the spiritual center. And it was a mirror city. And so although they, yes, they physically built the temple, the concept is what we would today know as the virtual world. And the cities would move. So when the Tigris and the Euphrates and, and all the other things were happening over time, the cities would just, they'd move or, you know, they'd be adapted, they'd be augmented. So they were very much, again, they were attuned with the, with, the, uh, with the environment. And so the future cities that I think of 
they are cyclical, they are synced to those other things, and they are for everybody. They are the kind of city that does understand that you know not everybody wants to live in a particular kind of home, and that understand our cultural relationship and our religious and our spiritual relationship with the natural world, which is particularly important in the East, but actually is important worldwide. Because if we think to, for example, London, if we, if we go back to the early Middle Ages, London too was a city that was very much in tune with the natural world. But it was actually around about, um, well, it was the Stuart London. It's, it's the point at which we saw London shift to... Um, being very much focused on the needs of man as opposed to the natural world. And from that point onwards, the architectural and the wider sort of uh, philosophical paradigm of the city changed. And of course, we here in London and over in Europe, we drove the global narratives because when we were out there colonizing these other places, we imposed our architectures. Some things we imposed were great. I know the legal system uh, of of many other places chose the British model, and that's a very robust model. But... um, You know, for me, there is no one future city. There are lots and lots of interesting, diverse cities. And what they're not is they're not not utopias. Because the ideal city is a place of dynamism. It is a place of generation. And you can't have generation without a certain amount of loss. You can't have understanding without a certain amount of hardship. I'm not saying that, you know, we all need to live lives of deep austerity. But when I think to many of the, the, you know, the most incredibly... Uh, intelligent and compassionate and really decent people I know, they have experienced the darker sides, the more unfortunate sides of life. And, and I see the future city as being, it's an amalgamation of all things. And it, and it doesn't try and reject certain things. It try and understands the relationship between what historically would have been called creative destruction. The fact that there has to be loss for gain. Um, and that actually applies not just in uh, the built world, but actually if you look to things like business systems, ec- economics, all kind of things. So, I mean, from this two, two aspects, I think you once talked about um, how certain type of intelligence sometimes mm. dominate. And yes. uh, one of the reasons why maybe we are, you know, in this place mm. in London and one of the narratives mm. which has been uh, dominant is very specific kind of, um, feedback and loop mm. system mm. where you're building upon only one preference. Yes. And and that is maybe one of the reasons why our systems is slowly maybe mm. might go towards, you know... Um, go to an extreme. Yeah, effectively. yeah. Uh, one extreme. And as, mm. as you just mentioned, in the past civilization, mm. no matter how um, diverse they were, but mm. as they become very complex, mm. they actually fell. Mm, and, that's and beca- right. Because complexity is i think not equal mm. to birds being robust yeah. yeah and i think that is where we are heading and that's yes. what's going yeah. wrong with it i think um one of the one of the most compelling books that i read of late was um eric klein's um 1077 the uh, no it was 1077 bc rather and it was about the fall of the bronze age and it was speaking to the fact that they had a highly sophisticated um, network of peoples trading across the near east and the mediterranean and 
it's quite extraordinary to, to actually read just how sophisticated they were in terms of their trade routes, in terms of the fact that, for example, they had migratory labor. I had never realized until I read his book that, for example, in Egypt, the pharaohs would hire in these tradespeoples from other parts of the whole region because they were simply better. Um, and then towards the end of that period, they had climatic change. They had um, a couple of unpleasant characters that essentially, rather than um, be diplomatic and, and try and solve problems through peaceful actions, were very egotistical. One of them reminds me of a certain political figure of the moment in that he essentially ruled that, none, uh, that no one else could actually directly worship um, the gods Indeed, he wasn't even tolerant of gods. He wanted there to be one god, the sun god, whom only he could commune with. And essentially what happened is what you can, well, what we've seen happen many times since is that the peoples had no choice but to tolerate this, what was a dictatorship. But as soon as he died, they literally tried to erase every aspect, every element of his existence. So, you know, hieroglyphs were destroyed, buildings were destroyed, temples, statues... And I think that, um, you know, looking back over time, there are certain cycles that come back again, and it's quite uncanny. Now, actually, Eric Klein was not quite on the button when he said that that was the last globalized nation, uh, sorry, globalized community but our own. Because then if you read uh, Frankopan Silk Roads, you then realize about the history of that, that trading routes and the influence of China, and that's incredibly interesting, the, the dynamism between the East and the West. There were things, again, I learned from, from his insights, such, for example, as Buddhism had been a set of principles. But when uh, Alexander the Great and that influence from the West came in, they felt that they had to have statues and physical uh, incarnations of you know, iconography. And I thought, my goodness. you know. Um, so again, and, and that, in a sense, it just shows you these fundamental trends in human nature and the fact that you know, we can be very accumulative, we can be very influenced in good and bad ways by other peoples and cultures, but I'm generally for exchange and for the dynamism. Um, but yes, of the moment, there are many, many parallels between present and past, and I also look to Stuart London. Um, my study of that period was almost accidental. I'd, I'd actually previously been very much interested in the Tudor period, and it was because of my, in the PhD, my specialism being wildfire at the Wildland Urban Interface, I was looking at how um, fire behaves, it cycles within the natural environment. And I then started to look at within the urban environment, but not the urban environment of now, but of the medieval period, because of course it was predominantly wood. And I was looking for parallels. So then I started to look into the Great Fire of London and that whole period. And again, it is uncanny. It's almost stomach-churningly nerve-wracking to see these trends just coming around again. And and that perhaps is more challenging for, the, for me as someone that, you know, that the well-traveled has predominantly grown up in the, in the global north because we, the north has a message that we don't like death here. We don't even like aging here. You know, everything has to remain in a state of stasis. It's about dominance. It's about control. Whereas when you look to other peoples and cultures of the world, there are different perspectives that have been trampled over, that have been... You know, for example, if, if, as I am, you're interested in Native American architectures, it's like trying to find, you know, an in Indiana Jones, trying to find the Temple of Doom, trying to find a good book on these, because um, of bias, inherent bias by publishers. And so there are lots and lots of other ways of dealing with these huge problems. Um, but because of this dominant 
if we're, you know, white male narrative, white male Christian male narrative, um, it has blinkered our perspective. But I think that is changing, and I think it's changing very fast. And I think that tells you tells us that importance of storytelling. I mean, yes. storytelling is somehow I would say um, neutral. I mean, you can use it for something really bad, and you can mm -hmm. use it for something really good. I think I remember one of the talks you did about Ahmedabad. Yes, and yeah. you, you, you talked about that because in their mythology, mm. the animals are part of, you know, their holy. system. Yes, they're, mm. their ecosystem. So they're part of mm. them. And so, mm. so stories like that, which would be very hard in mm. this modern era where everyone, as you mm. going towards being static or be going towards mm. being, you know, immortal through some mm. sort of a dreamy technology where yes. they want to somehow freeze themselves to exactly. call that uh, life forever, which is yeah. a very strange and risky concept without mm. actually understanding. They don't, they're, they're, that's a very futurist narrative, the idea that you know, we, we will be able to live to these ridiculous ages. Um, and it's, it is, again, it's, it's all about the sort of fundamental narrative of control. They are very uh, superficial in their understanding in that there is no understanding of the philosophy of these issues there is no understanding of even the practical issues the fact that if we if everyone lived forever um you know how are we going to feed everybody they they will always come up with what seems to them a simplistic solution like oh well we'll, we'll colonize space and even in that the human physiology like all all life on Earth is very bespoke to this planet. It is bespoke to the gravity of the planet. If we were to, you know, now export ourselves and go and live on Mars, the differential in the the gravitational pull on our bodies would mean that we would get muscle wastage. My fertility cycle as a woman would be a, would be impacted because my my whole body, my whole functioning. So could we even reproduce? There are all these really important questions. We know that astronauts get neurological issues, and and but people they don't speak about it and it's because I think it's actually it's not to be honest it's not that particular community within the futurist um, world as it were that we, we all blame here it's actually the, the media and it's actually the people that are giving this platform because what they should be doing what their job is to do is to come back into question and to say well okay good to hear your idea but how would it work in relation to blah 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 um, that that's still not happening and on many 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 levels and it's a very dangerous thing um, and obviously not just in relation to um, you know whether or not we we extend life or we extend the human presence in the solar system but particularly with the city there are a lot of mistakes being made because a there's no understanding some of the things I'm going to speak about in the talk I'm going to give later are issues that if you're a scientist that is either studying them or that is in the uh, company of they that do are blindingly obvious and yet they are absent they are absent from the conversation and they desperately need to come into the conversation because when they're in that conversation we can deal with them because we don't get blindsided by the things that we've already thought through it's the things that come at us from behind that oh blimey you know then then major human catastrophe um, so yeah there, there's so much bias um, and it's, it's not just, obviously, as a woman, I'm very conscious of the gender bias. It's, it's all kinds of bias. It really is a universal problem. It is every bit as bad as people speak to. 
Um, I think particularly racial in my experience of speaking to peers in some other places, including America, I have been shocked by the level of racism. It just, for me, it, it, it's hard to understand. Um, but on every, every level, the narrative is so narrow and it's dangerous because yeah. it does influence investing and development proposals. So, I mean, you are fighting this fight, I would say. It's mm. it's a big proposal. It's something which you are doing. I, I, mm. I truly appreciate it. That's why I'm here talking to you. Mm. So you must have, so this is a bit of a segue. You must have uh, experienced a lot of resistance. So how are you carrying you on with your energy? Surprisingly, surprisingly not, okay. actually, touch wood. In that, <laughs> or not to my knowledge, people <laughs> behind my back will be resisting en masse. Um, I've actually had a surprisingly good response, including, for example, several years ago now, I gave a talk that was actually to 100 um, white male, predominantly Christian men, um, in which I essentially critiqued, uh, critiqued the fact that their perspective had been governing the approach to the built environment, and I explained why. And the talk was initially met by silence. And I thought, oh my goodness, they're probably just going to walk out or something. But actually, when they started coming up to me and we started talking, they actually didn't know about a lot of things I've been talking about. Some of the theories, you know, that within the academic world, you would think were incredibly well known, you know, but they hadn't come across it. And we started a dialogue. And actually, I mean, historically, I haven't. And commercially, I have not, I will not accept an assignment from a fossil fuel company because obviously... I'm very much aware of climate change and of the imperative to, to migrate to alternative energy. But I have had dialogue with people in the fossil fuel sector. And it's important to have that dialogue because the thing that I found that, again, was it was almost an epiphany moment, was that the absence of the migration to renewables on their part had not been out of ignorance. And indeed, when you think about it, it makes absolute sense because in order that you extrapolate fossil fuels from the earth, you need to have a profound understanding of earth systems. You need to be able to track back not only the tectonic movements, but the, the ecology movements and so on and so forth. Millions and millions of years, hundreds of millions of years. And so they knew, they absolutely knew and understood climate change and just how bad it could be. So no revelation there. So the question is, why, why was there not action sooner? Why was money being put into lobbying groups and so forth? And it comes down to this. They had not the faith, and I'm not going to cite the individual, but a particular individual at a particular fossil fuel company said to me, well, you know, do you, do you think people will mobilize? I mean, you know, I, he said, to be honest, for me and some of my peers, you know, we think that it's beyond human capacity. And so, you know, we don't think people are able to really understand this problem, let alone to work together to make a solution. And I said, well, actually, in my experience, most people are pretty sensible. Most people are a lot smarter than they're given credit. And if you explain a situation to them, you know, and no, cut the bullshit, you know, you tell them this is how it is, and these are our options, and you understand their position, what you don't do is you don't say, okay, well, this is the problem. Now, you know, we're going to carry on as we are. We're going to, you know, do all the things we've been doing and enjoy. But you over there, you're going to suffer we're going to make your, you know, we expect you to forego certain things. It's not going to work. Um, I said, and so my belief is that, yeah, there will be, there will be a challenge. And it won't, be, it won't be that we will conquer every uh, element of that. There will be loss. But it is, it is within the human spirit and it's within our historic capacity to meet challenges. And I said, and we could actually come up better than this, which is not to say it's going to be a rosy picture and that I want any of this to happen. But I think if we fully confront 
what we are being faced with, what we know of that, what we don't know of that, and we're honest about that, and we, you know, accept the fact that not everybody's going to come on the journey, but we understand the needs inherently of they that will, then I think we can make progress. And he was actually quite shocked by that. You know, and so I think you have to have the, the dialogue. That said, what I don't stand for is misinformation and the sort of anti-vaxxing, climate skepticism that denies the science because that is very dangerous. That is coming from a, a psychology of denial that's getting back to Carl Jung and to um, they that have not the capacity to understand the abstract, but that instead have to see it, have to feel it. And again, you could argue, on the other hand, that that is their, that's their inherent disposition and have some sympathy with that and try and work with that. But it depends on quite where they're at. If it's a little bit of denial and if you can see that inherently they are scared of something and that's the fear is driving that, oh, you know, well, I mean, I, I think to actually have a, a friend's boyfriend who we were talking, he's a, he's, he's a little bit on the climate skeptic side. He <laughs> likes to think he knows everything. <laughs> he actually mansplained to me an element of my PhD without realizing, you know, that his sort of, you know, reading an article on Wikipedia was not quite punching at the same level. Sorry if that sounds arrogant, but we've all been there, haven't we, in the academic world? And he said to me, well, actually, I think, I think climate change could be really positive, you know, because he said, you know, British wines are improving, aren't they? <laughs> 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 you know? And I just, I mean, how can we deal with that? How can we feel that? There was no understanding at all of what the bigger context was. Um, not that, you know, I mean, if British wines can improve, then great. But, you know, it was the fact that he couldn't comprehend the systemic impact um, and again, looking at his psychology, his is very much that of walls and borders, walls and borders, wherein the idea is that you can block out the problem, um, you know, or it's possible to contain it, wherein everyone else suffers, but you don't, you know. And I think there is a lot of that. And to be honest, when we look back through history, you know, when we look back to past events that have essentially evolved from uh, resource shortages and from times in which living was rather harder than it had been we tend to see these extremes come out and that for me is more frightening than the environmental change because humans can be pretty unpleasant creatures and i can deal with you know i can deal with antarctica melting and the loss incurred because it's an indirect it's an indirect but it's a very difficult thing to look at people and to see them being deliberately hurtful to other people and to try and understand that that that's an awful thing and that that is my biggest fear with climate change is that conflict will rise and that you know we will see very unpleasant behaviors so not only that we we have to address the denial but also mm. we there's another side where we might 10 years ago or 20 mm. years ago we had a hubris somehow mm. of technological naivety yes. where we thought that more well, we'll impregnate each and every part mm. and then we realize or, or we will eat out of tubes where we would be you know more more <laughs> yeah, we'll 3d print all yes. our food yes. yeah <laughs> and and then now everything is organic and now mm. we realize oh it's much more complex than mm. we thought and mm. how much um, arrogant we were mm. to actually you know thought that oh we the most intelligent species would actually you know somehow take over yeah. and as you're saying that mm didn't realize that we are actually part, literally mm. part of other animals. I mean, that's a much we bigger system. Much we are a cog in a wheel. And if you took us as a cog out, yeah, absolutely. Life will, 
life will sustain. In fact, life could rebound really quite quickly. We know that because we know that in the world wars, the marine stocks increased because of lack, of, you know, because of the drop in fishing and so forth. Um, but I think it is, it is a very, very um, dangerous situation now because of the fact that we're not just dealing with climate change. We're obviously dealing with massive plastic pollutions. We also have pollution more generally. Um, obviously, the threat of pandemics, uh, you know, through what happens, obviously, with climate change, it displaces the species, which displaces the pathogens, which increases probabilities of disease. And so, and those are just a few of the things we face. So we've got this sort of crescendo, as it were, of things that are coming at us. And we don't quite know, you know, when and how these things will manifest. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a very dangerous time. But actually, for people that are intelligent, for people that are creative, for they that have the capacity to imagine, it could be a very generative time in that, you know, when we're very comfortable and when everything is assured, we, we don't tend to really push ourselves. But both individually and as a species, we do tend to up our game, as it were. So, um, you know, I, I think it's really good to sort of take the blinkers off, really look at everything. And that's a difficult process. People don't talk about confronting that issue. You know, I've been... My first interest in climate change was when I was a child. So I've been aware of the issue since I was 11. My first climate change project I did when I was 15. It was an art project for my GCSEs. And I was looking at these terrible things back then in the 80s. And so I've had a lot of time to adapt and to adjust and to get used to this. And it's not always been easy. There have been times when I've had sleepless nights and I felt really worried. But I'm kind of beyond that now because I'm, you know, I've kind of been through these cycles. I might go back to that. I don't know. But... Um, yeah, it's, it is a question of really just looking and understanding the issue, also having hope, looking to all the people that are doing incredible things, looking to your friends, looking to your colleagues, and just knowing that we really don't have all the answers. So, um, you know, keep an open mind about everything and just do the things that you can do in the way that you can do them. And really don't care if no one else has done it that way before or if you're a little bit unusual. And just know, be reassured, you know, because they always joke that as a PhD or as an academic, your family don't know what you do. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> you know, there is that joke. But don't, don't worry, because all the people that have ever done anything that really made a big difference were a little bit different to everybody else. So, you know, just be comfortable with what you're doing. Um, and, you know, but do reach out for, for help and for assistance and support when you need it. Perfect. Just the last thing. I mean, yeah. so you are actually giving faith and you do believe that we can somehow build through our passion and you're doing the right thing, mm. a city which is different and mm. different from each other and dynamic. And mm. somehow we will be able to go back to the home somehow mm. where we actually, you know, maybe mm. way long in the past we mm. might be living in that, but it was really harsh. Mm. So maybe we can bring some positive things back yeah. And be able to somehow make that home. If we if we start to look at the way that other people built and created their cities in relation to their environment, if we look beyond the modernist narrative, which is so dom dominant, because whereas other architectural styles, sort of they, yes, they're around and about the world and we can go and see them, but the world population has expanded so immensely over the past several decades and with that building that, it, you know, the, the modernist, as it were, narrative is, it's, physically dominant in the world now so people can forget about all these alternatives but there are lots and lots of different ways of living um, and so for people that are interested in future cities I would say yes yes do read 
you know, on the predominant, the Lewis Mumfords and the predominant thinkers, be familiar with their works, but actually get out there and travel. Go and see historic architectures. Go and see vernacular architectures. It doesn't matter where, but see what you can and look at what's different and then think about how and why they did that because none of these things were built incrementally. They all have an inherent, innate intelligence. Understand that and then think about, well, could that be applied now? In my experience, frankly, there is so much there. It's an incredibly rich domain and it desperately needs more researchers and it desperately needs more people. Um, but more, you know, obviously, with architecture, we again tend to think about what's built now. But architecture isn't just built. Architecture is basically about how you use space. And as Cedric Price said, you don't even have to build in some instances. It's not even the right thing to do in some instances. And again, if we look to the vernacular, the historic architectures, that's absolutely within their narrative. So um, just you know, go out there, see what people are doing, talk to people, and don't assume that just because something is popular, just because something has got the endorsement of lots and lots of people, it's the right way to do it. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Melissa. Thank you. I hope Thank to you. catch Pleasure. again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.